friends, I'm here to announce this morning that it is officially no longer pool season outside. Um, I, as I've lived in Arizona, I've come to re realize that we really only have two seasons here, don't we? Uh, you might call them summer and winter. I call them pool season and hiking slash pickleball season. That's really how it works. So yesterday, uh, we weren't in the pool. We were out on a hike and had a great time. Uh, if you're a parent here this morning, or a dad especially, I imagine you've had the same experience that I've had in the pool with my kids, uh, and helping each of them get used to the water as a toddler, I've encouraged them to jump from the side of the pool into my arms, right? Um, I have no intention, do I, of letting my kids go under the water right? At least not at first. That's like the next level in the training program, right? Where you fake the catch and you let them fall in to get them used to it. Um, but at first, I want them to trust me fully, right? Hadley, I've got you. It's okay. Just, just jump to daddy. Cooper, you will not go under. Daddy's going to catch you, right? Canaan, Canaan, jump to daddy. Now, eventually, my kids have all gotten there. Now, they, they jump into the pool with reckless abandon, whether I'm there to catch them or not. Uh, but that's not how they start. Each of my kids, when I encourage them to do that, they do something like this. As much as I wish they would just jump out into my arms, what they do is they get as close as they can to the edge, and then they kneel down nervously and try to grab my hands and then jump. Or they sit down, they scoot their, you know, their hiney to the edge of the pool, and then they just kind of scoot in, right? They're not, they don't trust me fully yet. As, as much as they say they do, or as much as I'd like them to, there's something about the water that it strikes fear in their heart, and that overwhelms their trust in me. Friends, I think this is a great illustration for us as the people of God. In our frailty, in our weakness, in our sin, so often our fear outstrips our faith. Instead of trusting the one whose everlasting arms have always caught us, always upheld us, we fearfully think, yeah, but maybe it'll be different this time, right? Maybe this is a little too much for the Lord to handle when scary circumstances arise. So often our hearts are a mixture of faith and fear. Perhaps that's where you are this morning. And if that's not you this morning, don't worry, you'll be there soon enough. Beloved, how can we grow in a resolute trust and faith no matter how threatening our circumstances may be? Our passage today in Matthew gives us an answer. We must keep our eyes on our glorious and powerful King. Please turn to Matthew chapter 14, the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 14, it's on page 820 of the Bible made available to you underneath the seats. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that Bible is there for you to use. If you don't own a Bible, friend, please take that Bible home and make it your Bible. We would love that. Two weeks ago, we left off with Jesus and his disciples on a hillside across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum near Bethsaida, where Jesus miraculously fed the crowds. He, he multiplied a small meal of five loaves and two fishes into a banquet feast, demonstrating his glory as his people's great provider and as the bread of life. Our text this morning, which starts in verse 22, it just picks up right on the heels 
of the feeding of the 5,000. And it really does raise the question for us, did the disciples understand and fully grasp what they just witnessed? Did they learn the lesson of the miracle that they just participated in? Will they trust fully this Jesus, not just in a generic sense, but in their hour of their most desperate need? Who will they turn to? What will their response be? Well, let's see as we read this morning, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I imagine if you're not a Christian this morning, especially those of you who are new to Christianity, these two sections of Matthew's gospel sound wild, right? After all, who among us has seen anyone walk on water? Have you ever tried that? How did it go, right? It defies our wildest imagination. Who here has witnessed sick people being made instantaneously well simply by touching the fringe of someone's clothes? Surely none of us. But friends, just because we've never seen something doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I would just remind us today that the gospel accounts here in, in the Bible are written as history, right? Like with the feeding of the 5,000, the gospel writers, most of them eyewitnesses to these, to these events, include specific details in their account that lend to their credibility, right? So for instance, Matthew and Mark both record that the miracle took place on a specific lake in Palestine. And it happened when? In the fourth watch of the night, which is simply the Roman way of saying between 3 and 6 a.m., like in the dead of night. John records that it happened after the disciples had been rowing three to four miles. Again, detailed historical record, not the whimsy of a fairy tale. And this account does not make the disciples look good, does it? It shows their weakness. It shows their fear. It highlights Peter's vacillating faith. Surely if the gospel authors like Matthew simply made this up, they wouldn't have intentionally made themselves look so bad. 
Now, friends, these accounts have all the markings of true historical record, but it's far more than that, isn't it? It's history with a theological purpose. It's intended to reveal to us the nature of the person and work of this one walking on the sea while showing us so much about ourselves in the process. Here's the main idea of these verses. The main idea of Matthew 14, 22 to 36, specifically verses 22 to 33. When the raging storm threatens you, Keep your eyes on your glorious and powerful Savior. Beloved, when the raging storm, the circumstances of your life, your own sin, trials and suffering, when, it, when this raging storm threatens you, keep your eyes on your glorious and powerful Savior. Friends, my four points this morning in the outline kind of mirror the plot line of this text. Number one, in verses 22 to 24, the stormy trial. Number two, from verses 25 to 27, the sovereign Lord. Number three, from verses 28 to 31, the sinking disciple. And number four, from verses 32 to 36, the Son of God. The stormy trial, the sovereign Lord, the sinking disciple the Son of God. Beloved, I pray today that we together might see more of the glory and power of Jesus, the Son of God, and that what we see might cause us to increasingly trust and worship Him. Number one, the stormy trial. Verse 22 says, Immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowds. And after He dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. Friends, the Apostle John in John 6, in his record of the story, adds the detail that after Jesus had miraculously fed the crowds on that hillside, those, those multitudes were prepared to take him by force and declare him to be the king of the Jews. But friends, Jesus was not interested in satiating the political thirst of the crowd. He would not use them to achieve earthly power. Instead, what Jesus craved in this moment was fellowship with his Father. Perhaps Jesus felt the need to spend time in prayer to, to recommit himself to his messianic mission, aimed not at earthly glory, but at the shame of the cross. Perhaps he sensed the need to prepare himself for his ministry to the Gentiles that we'll see in chapter 15. I'd love to think that Jesus that night was interceding even for his struggling disciples, wrestling against the storm. But regardless, Jesus retreated to pray. Friends, I don't know of any other thing that convicts me about my own prayer life than to know that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the sinless Son of Man, committed himself to prayer. If there was ever one for whom you would think prayer was unnecessarily, surely it's Jesus, right? The detail of prayer is given as kind of an incidental detail of this story. So we're not going to linger here. But friends, let me just ask you, how can we weak, frail, sinful humans think that we are too busy or stressed or distracted to pray when clearly Jesus was not? We need to follow the steps of our Savior. 
I'm going to read verse 22 again, but this time I'm going to keep reading until the end of verse 24, okay? Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Friends, what's striking about this portion of Matthew, of the text, isn't necessarily that the disciples found themselves in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Violent storms are common to this day on this very lake due to the high winds that sweep down through the ravines between the mountains that surround the sea. In fact, we've already seen the disciples and Jesus in a storm just like this on the Sea of Galilee. Remember uh, Matthew 8, when the storm surged around the boat, it struck terror in the disciples. And what was Jesus doing? He was asleep on the, in the stern of the boat, right? And when they awoke him, he quieted the storm with his mere word. So, so the presence of the storm is not striking. What's striking is that the text says Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He made them. Matthew doesn't picture the disciples' predicament as an unfortunate coincidence. Jesus goes up to pray and whoops, wouldn't you know it, here comes a violent storm that threatens the disciples. No, the text pictures Jesus commanding the disciples into the lake, into the storm, in full control of the situation. Friends, if Jesus can discern the thoughts of men, which we know he could, if if he's self-aware of his messianic identity, which we know he was, if he could heal the sick and raise the dead, surely he knew with his divine omniscience what was about to happen to his disciples. What we see here is the intentionality of Jesus to put his disciples in the heart of the storm. He is sovereignly orchestrating the situations, not so that the disciples avoid suffering, but so that they sail right into it. Beloved, here here is a Jesus that challenges our presuppositions about him. He challenges our instincts about how we think God ought to operate, right? When we read such a statement as this, he made the disciples get into the boat. I know some of us are thinking to ourselves, no way. That can't be. Jesus is loving. He would never do anything to put his people in harm's way. If you're a skeptic today of, about Christianity, maybe you're thinking to yourself, see, I told you, the God of the Bible is a moral monster. Here he is orchestrating suffering for his people, some God of love, right? Or perhaps you're just thinking to yourselves, this can't be what's going on. The text can't mean, mean this, right? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, but he didn't know what was going to happen, right? He just kind of reacted. Well, if Jesus didn't know what was going on, how did he know to cross the sea to save them when he was miles away on a mountain praying. No, friends, the clear evidence of this text is not only did Jesus know, he arranged the entire thing. Why? Why would he do this? Doesn't he care about them? Friends, I would submit to you that Jesus orchestrated this stormy trial precisely because he cares about his disciples. Jesus knows that the most loving thing he could ever do for them is to reveal to them his glory so that they might trust in and worship him fully. And so he sends them into the storm so that he might do just that. Friends, Jesus' aim in your life is not to make you happy by earthly standards. 
Jesus' aim in your life is to make you holy by heavenly standards and thereby eternally happy. So often what we see as adversity, God has sent our way as an opportunity for us to see Christ Jesus more clearly and so grow up into him. Let's face it, suffering has a unique way of stripping us of our self-dependence and pride. It reorients our desires. It it forces our clenched fingers off of the priorities of this world to latch on to the priorities of heaven. It refocuses our vision to behold the glory of God in Christ through his spirit. So often, friends, if you're like me, and I just think this is how it works because I know you're like me and we're all followers of Christ by faith, we see Christ so often more clearly in the storm. There's no doubt that night, all the disciples felt was misery. They were tired. They were windblown. They were soaked, right? They had been busy all day. They were distributing food for the masses throughout the day. Now they were rowing across the lake, you know, against the wind. They wanted to sleep, but here they are in the dead of night, battling the winds and waves just to survive. All they saw was adversity. But Jesus had sent them into the storm that night as an opportunity to unveil more of his glory and power before their eyes. Friends, evidently, Jesus cares more that we behold his glory than he does that we lead a stress-free, problem-free life. Why? Because he knows that our souls are not satisfied by the lack of cares. Our souls are not satisfied by comfort and earthly peace. We will only be satisfied by knowing and loving him. Perhaps you've heard the Christian cliche, God won't give you more than you can handle. Friends, tell that to the disciples, right? That's a big bunch of man-centered baloney. That is not true at all. Throughout your Christian life, friends, the Lord will repeatedly give you more than you can handle. The true phrase is that God will never give you more than he can handle. His aim is not that you find yourself to be capable to maneuver through the storm on your own, but so that you might find him to be sufficient to lead you through life storms. Friends, the Lord Jesus here is not functioning as the divine fixer-upper, right? Just someone remarkably good at giving, giving cosmic spiritual TLC to broken situations. Tender loving care. He's not functioning here as the biblical version of a Marvel superhero. He didn't know what was coming, right? Jesus didn't know what was coming, but he rushes in to save the day, just like the Avengers. Praise God. No, Jesus can only demonstrate his authority on the back end of a trial because he is sovereign on the front end, friends. From start to finish, Jesus is Lord. Friend, which kind of king would you rather have one who's impotent to prevent trials, but does a pretty good job of fixing them or one who sovereignly orchestrates every detail of our lives, including our suffering to demonstrate more of his love and power and sufficiency to us while all the while in the midst of it, conforming us more into his image, which Christ would you rather have? Please don't think this morning that I'm trivializing your trials 
That somehow talking about Jesus' sovereignty just, just glosses over them as if they're not hard and they're not painful. I know they are. Friends, I pray that you might come to resonate with this truth this morning about the Lord Jesus. I, I pray that your heart's cry is not, hey, give me the stress-free, comfort-free life. Give me the life that is just one perpetual beach vacation. But rather, I pray that the ache of your soul is give me the sovereign Savior who works all things together for the good of his people. Give me the king of the storm who at times will send me right into the heart of it so that he might demonstrate that all my circumstances are under his feet. Give me the God who orchestrates all things to mold me into the image of Christ and so grant me eternal joy in him. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus do you want? Number two, the sovereign Lord. The stormy trial, the sovereign Lord. Look again at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Friends, I think there is a spiritual significance to the fact that Jesus waited until the fourth watch of the night to come to his disciples. They had struggled apparently against the storm for hours at this point. Why didn't Jesus come sooner? Well, perhaps Jesus waited so that the disciples felt the full weight of their own need of him. If he had come in the second or third watch of the night, perhaps they wouldn't have been ready for the rescue that he provided. In the words of James, Jesus' half-brother who wrote much later, Jesus let the trial have its full effect. Let steadfastness have its full effect. He wasn't late. He was right on time to accomplish his purpose in them. So picture the scene here. It's the pitch black of night. The disciples have been battling the wind and waves for hours. You know, many of them are experienced fishermen. So if they're struggling at the mercy of the storm, this is, this is a significant storm, right? Their, their small boat is being tossed like a rag doll around the, over the waves. It's a, it's a terrifying situation. And then, and then, to make it worse, out of the watery blackness, they see a man walking on the water, coming toward them. And that, the text says, ter terrifies them. Friends, it's interesting. We're not told the disciples were terrified by the storm, although they may have been. The text says they were terrified by Jesus. They think he's an apparition, a phantom, right? In ancient Jewish thought that the sea was the place of evil and chaos and death. It's the place where the evil spirits dwelt. So more than likely, what they think is coming toward them is from the realm of the dead or the demonic. Look at verse 27. But immediately. Friends, I love that. It communicates so much of Jesus' care and intention to calm their fears. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, at first glance, it, it seems like Jesus is just kind of letting the disciples know that it's him. Yoo-hoo, guys, it's me, Jesus. Take heart, don't be afraid. But friends, the English translation, it is I, does not convey the full, thick significance of what Jesus was saying that night. What Jesus quite literally was saying, in the, even in the Greek, ego emi, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Friends, that is what 
Peter heard that gave him such confidence to step out of the boat. The one walking on the sea was taking for himself the ancient and famous name of Israel's almighty God. You remember Exodus 3? right? When, when Yahweh revealed himself to Moses on Horeb in the burning bush, and then he commissioned him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses asked God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. In other words, tell the people that the one who sent you, Moses, is the transcendent source of all that is. The one who derives his existence only in himself, without any outside help at all, right? The one who has always been, the one who will always be. Tell them the great I am sent you. See, friend, in this moment, Jesus wasn't just assuring his disciples with his earthly name. It's me, Jesus. He was calming their fears by taking to himself the divine name. And he was doing it as he walked on the face of the sea. Again, friends, the sea, the most powerful force in all creation, even today. Think of Hurricane Ian just a few weeks ago. The storm surge up to 15 foot high on Sanibel Island, demolishing everything in its path. The ocean is terrifying in its power and darkness. But in the ancient world, the sea symbolized chaos and evil and was the mythical home of the rival gods. We even see that in biblical thought. Do you remember when we studied Psalm 89 earlier this summer? The psalmist writes of God's triumph over Egypt and the Red Sea crossing. And what did the psalmist say in Psalm 89? You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty hand. Well, who in the world is Rahab? It was the ancient mythical sea dragon, right? The, the Old Testament pictures God's victory over Egypt in the mighty waters as the crushing of an ancient serpentine evil. It was a victory over Satan, wasn't it? It previewed the day when the rescuer king, God promised to sin would crush the serpent's head and bring salvation to the world. Listen to how Psalm 77, 16 to 20 talks about it. Just grab your bulletin. Pictures the, the Lord's mighty deliverance of his people at the Red Sea. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Friends, how did God deliver his people from Egypt? Not merely by parting the waters of the Red Sea and then saying, go ahead, go through. No, by leading them through the mighty waters, proving his lordship over every rival power. Friends, it's no coincidence. It's no coincidence, is it, that earlier that day, Jesus provided his people bread in the wilderness, embodying God's provision of manna, just like the Exodus. Now he's saving his people through the waters of judgment, walking on the sea, just as Yahweh did, leading his people out of Egypt. Clearly, Jesus is signifying that he is on the scene to provide a far greater rescue. The, the Exodus was just like a dress rehearsal for this great deliverance that he's bringing. Job says of the Lord in Job 9.8, he is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion 
the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Beloved, do you see what's happening? It's not just that Jesus talked as God talked. Jesus walked as God walked. Jesus subdued the mighty waters because he's God. Think about it. Whereas the God of pillar and cloud was shrouded in mystery as he led his people through the waters with footsteps unseen, whereas Job's perception of God was that he passed by while he couldn't see him, in Jesus, friends, the disciples saw the God of the ages passing by in plain sight. The disciples beheld his glory. Glory is as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, this is the great I am, stepping into time and space and history to make himself known fully and finally in the person of Christ. Jesus is treading the billowing waves of the sea as if he's out for a morning stroll. He put the chaotic waters under his feet. So what's happening here? When Jesus walked on the water, he is symbolically demonstrating his superiority to every rival power, just like God did when he delivered his people from Egypt. This wasn't just a cool miracle, was it? This is, this is a neon theological billboard flashing the good news that Satan's reign is doomed. Sin and death were on the clock. The mighty conquering king had arrived and no rival power could thwart him. We see the power and the glory of Jesus. Friends, do you see now maybe with, a, with an ex expanded understanding the depth of meaning and comfort in Jesus' words, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. What fears plague your heart this morning? What storm threatens to capsize your life? What dark clouds are forming on the horizon that strike terror in your soul? Is it a health crisis? Job loss? Spouse's betrayal? Financial peril? A past tragedy that grips your heart and perpetual terror that it could happen again? A culture increasingly hostile to biblical Christianity? Friends, all of these things are legitimately scary. But none of them are a match for the power and glory of Jesus. And none of them can affect God's eternal purpose in Christ to bring you safely home. When it comes to fears that plague us, we really do need to apply our theology, don't we, in terms of the greater to the lesser. If Jesus reigns over every rival power, if he's dealt with my sin on the cross, if he's defeated death through his resurrection, and I'm united to this sovereign, gracious king by faith, then really what is there left for me to fear? If God is so for us in Christ, you fill out the rest. Who can be against us. Friends, notice what a powerful picture of gospel grace we see in this combo of Jesus' terrifying presence and then his comforting words. His terrifying presence and his comforting words. 
Jesus is here both the fear inducer and the fear reliever. I think this mirrors what the nature of a saving encounter with God looks like. Left to ourselves, we ought to be terrified by the presence of a holy and just God. Why? Because he sees us just as we are. His holy gaze uncovers our darkest secrets. The Lord is so glorious in his perfection that to look on him is to die immediately. No one can look upon the Lord and live. To apprehend God accurately is to tremble with terror because of how holy he is and how unholy we are. And yet this God, yet this God for no other reason but his own free and sovereign mercy put forward his son as an atoning sacrifice to satisfy his own wrath. (laughs) In holy love, God quenched his own justice in Jesus. Friends, in his death upon the cross, Christ walked through the waters of judgment for his people and then he came out safe on the other side. And united to him, we will do the same. Death's waves cannot submerge us because we are safe with Christ. As John Newton wrote, it's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Friends, what this means is is that if Jesus has quenched God's wrath and he's, he's, he's stripped from Satan the only weapons that Satan had to dominate our lives, the guilt of our sin and the power and fear of death, friends, if, if Jesus has taken those things from Satan, then all that is left for us in every single circumstance of our life is the experience of more and more of God's mercy and grace. That means that every storm he sends your way is a storm with a purpose of love. My favorite hymn that we don't sing is God Moves in a Mysterious Way, written by William Cooper. We named my middle child after this man. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Friends, perhaps a fruitful study for you this week, especially if fears are overwhelming your heart right now, would just to get a Bible app. Just get a Bible app and simply type in the search bar, do not be afraid or fear not or do not fear. I did that this week as part of my study. And I was reminded that so often through the scripture, the Lord ties his revelation of himself, his revelation of his character and works to the command for us not to be afraid. It's been like this from the very beginning. This was with Abraham, right? Abraham, I am your shield. Do not fear. With Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, it just fills the book of Isaiah over and over again. God revealing himself and said, saying to his people, do not be afraid. I know what we're tempted to think about fear in our scary situation. I just need to get out of it, right? That's when things will get better. That's when I'll not be afraid anymore. I just need to get out of the situation. I just need the storm to pass. Then I won't be fearful anymore. But friends, did you notice the timing of when Jesus spoke these words to the disciples? Was it in the boat? After he had calmed the storm? No, 
It was on the sea while the, while the tide is rising and the wave is raging, are raging. He spoke these words of assurance during the storm. Jesus does not want us to hunker down in fear during the storm and merely kind of strive in a kind of self-effort wave to try to get out of it. No, he wants us to look at his glory passing by and to heed his words, do not fear while the storm rages. Beloved, perhaps this morning the Lord Jesus would just have you listen to his mighty voice piercing the darkness of your night. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Number three, the sinking disciple. I feel like we could close in prayer right there, but there's more. As glorious as Jesus is walking on the water is, as reassuring as his words are, we haven't even reached the climax of the story yet, right? The tension still remains. The storm still rages. But when Simon Peter sees the Lord Jesus walking on the waves and taking God's name for himself, what happens? When Peter sees this and he hears the words of Jesus, something clicks inside of him. He begins to understand who Jesus is, and now he's going to put it to the test. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you... Command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Can you imagine the disciples' reaction here? Like maybe some grabbing for Peter as he, as he stepped out into, of the boat into the water, like one of those situations that kind of, you know, appearing in slow motion, but you can't react fast enough to present it, you know, or to pre pre prevent it. Like, you know, your kids falling down the stairs or something like that. You're just watching this happen. No. Right? It's truthfully one of the most astonishing moments in the entire Bible. Peter's always been known for his boldness. He always seems to be the, the man of action, right, for good, or, for good or bad. But surely we can't just chalk up Peter's request here to his bold personality or disposition. Because this move is certifiably insane. It's insane apart from faith in the one walking on the water. Jesus bid him come, so Peter came. Peter got out of the boat, the text says, and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. So convinced was Peter of Jesus' identity that he not only believed, he took action based on his belief. He staked his life on this belief. Friends, this is what biblical faith is. It's not just intellectual assent about who Jesus is. It's conviction that causes us to take action. We don't confess merely that Jesus is Lord and then do nothing else. No, we confess that Jesus is Lord accompanied by repentance from our sin and faith in Christ to save us. We follow him. It's a living, active, step-taking faith. That's what Peter is giving evidence of here. But while we see in Peter the presence of genuine faith, it's not perfect faith, is it? It's far from perfect faith. Verse 30 but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and be beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus' words here, are, they're shocking to me. After all, Peter possessed a remarkable faith in his initial posture toward the Lord. He got out of the boat and literally took steps upon the sea. How many of us would have done that? But Jesus' words indicate that Peter's faith, although present, was not complete. We see in Peter a fickleness and a frailty that should feel very familiar to us. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Let's just think about this text. Why was Peter able to walk on the water? Was it his ability? 
Was it the superhuman quality of his faith? Like his, his faithometer, right? His faithometer, you know, it must have been off the charts when he stepped out. Why then did he sink? Was it his, that his ability somehow petered out? <laughs> that was on the fly. Wow. Did his faithometer somehow just drop and Peter correspondingly dropped with it? Yes and no. Obviously, Peter's participation in Jesus' reign over the waves, it did correspond with the presence and absence of faith. But friends, it was not Peter who enabled himself to walk on the water. It was Jesus, 100%. It was Jesus who made the water firm ground for Peter. And so therefore, it was Jesus who caused Peter to sink when Peter became afraid and took his eyes off the Lord. Why did Peter doubt? Why did Jesus say that he had a small faith? He did take his eyes off the object of his faith. Peter began to sink when Jesus no longer dominated his vision. The text says when he saw the wind. When Peter's senses began to be overcome by the terror of the storm, fear arose in his heart and he began to sink. When Peter started, friends, the glory of Jesus looked really big. But when he looked around, the storm all of a sudden seemed really great and Jesus seemed really small. And so Jesus let Peter begin to sink. Friends, so much of our sanctification revolves around the glory of God in Christ becoming larger and larger and larger in our understanding and application. We grow in faith to the degree that we grow in the knowledge of God. You will not grow in faith if you're not growing in the knowledge of God. That's just how it works. You can, tr you can even just trace this progression in the life of Peter in the Scripture, can't you? What a, what a profile of an up-and-down faith. So not only this event, but in chapter 16, he's going to boldly confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But after Jesus is arrested, Peter's going to wilt in the presence of a servant girl, and deny any association with Christ. And yet, by the time we get to the book of Acts, Peter is boldly preaching on the day of Pentecost on behalf of the risen Christ. When the religious leaders take him into custody and demand that he stop, he stop preaching, do you remember what Peter says in Acts 5? We must obey God rather than men. Friends, Jesus' resurrected glory made the threats of the rulers dwindle in Peter's eyes. Perhaps you remember Lucy's words to Aslan when she arrives back in Narnia in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're an older little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a picture of sanctification. It's a profound image of our growth in Christ. It was true for Peter. It's true for you and me. Friends, you will only overcome your fear to the degree that you rightly apprehend the glory and power of Jesus in your life. Jesus must appear bigger and bigger and larger and larger in your heart and mind. And that happens as you take time to know him as he reveals himself in his word and in the fellowship of his people. That's how it happens. Don't miss the lesson Jesus is teaching Peter here. 
We as believers will only participate in Christ's victory and so persevere to the end if we keep our eyes on him. It's not enough to start the Christian life well. Baptism, church membership, discipleship, initial passion for the things of God. No, friends, we must finish well. From the beginning to the end, we must keep our eyes on Christ. Even when the storm's fury threatens to overwhelm us, we must persevere with an active, living dependence upon Jesus. You say, John, that sounds like a really high bar, man. I'm not sure I have the strength to do that. I'm not sure I'm up to the task. I'm quite sure you're not. But Jesus is. Peter is a picture of doubt-riddled faith, of imperfect faith. And yet in his imperfect faith, we see the grace and the compassion of Jesus. As the waves begin to overcome Peter, he cries out, Lord, save me. And the text says that Jesus kind of just let him flail around in the waves, you know, go under and up a few times while he got his theological ducks in a row, made him really feel the pain. No, Peter cried out in desperation and verse 31 says, Jesus immediately, immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Friend, you need an active living faith in the glory and power and mercy of Christ. But at the end of the day, it is not you who keeps yourself attached to him. It is he who keeps you attached to him through faith. It is his love that will not let you go. No storm is strong enough to rip you away from Jesus' strong hand to save you. So keep trusting, keep walking by faith. Set your eyes on the one with the waters of death and evil under his feet. He will lead you safely home. Lastly, the Son of God, verses 32 to 36. Verse 32 says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Friends, here we do see this this progress, this maturation of the disciples' understanding of Jesus. In Matthew 8, after he calmed the raging sea with his voice, the disciples marveled and asked, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now they're beginning to get it. This was no ordinary man. This was the Son of God. Yes, the Son Messiah, the King, but far more, the divine Son of God was in the boat with them and they worshiped him. Friends, this account that we just read and studied together, it demands that you make a decision about who Jesus Christ really is. Jesus is not your friendly neighborhood philosopher. He's not the ancient Jewish version of Buddha or Socrates or Gandhi. That's how so many in our modern culture think of Jesus, just another philosophical entree on the smorgasbord of religious options. He was such a good teacher, but let's not get... Too carried away with it, right? Friends, that is not how Matthew presents Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as nothing less than the God of the universe who entered this rule to usher in his his rule and his reign. So either Jesus is a a lunatic, he's crazy, and so are his disciples, he's a liar, as Lewis said, or he is the Lord. Friends, I pray that if you're not a Christian, you would recognize this morning the identity of Christ. 
He came to rescue and to ransom sinners from their bondage to sin and death. He came to rescue you if you're still in your sin without Christ. He's the Lord of the storm. He's the God of the ages come to redeem and to forgive all who would trust in him. I pray that today you would recognize this Christ, that you would bow your heart and life before him like the disciples in the boat and say, truly, truly you're the son of God. I'm giving you my life. I want to follow you. I'm laying down my sin and pride and I'm trusting in you, Jesus. Jesus, do for me what I could never do. Atone for my sin. Release me from the power of death, the power of death that haunts my life every day and reconcile me to God. Friends, if you'll do that this morning, just as surely as Christ lifted Peter out of the deep, Just as surely as those who touched the fringe of of Christ's garment were healed of their sickness, Jesus will rescue you from the eternal penalty of your sin. He will do what he's done for so many in this room. He will heal and transform your life. He will make you a new person. He'll not only forgive your sin against God, he will begin a transformation process so that you might increasingly reflect more and more and more of this glory that we talked about this morning. Friends, come and worship this Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would do just what we discussed, that we would worship the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and trust our lives to Him, letting His power and glory drive out our fear and to fill us with faith. Well, Father, I pray that we would, even in the words of Hebrews, we would look to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is even now seated at the right hand of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.